Hello and welcome to Musings on History. Episode 4.12 Repressive Desublimation, Celebrity, and Representational Politics in the COVID Era. Welcome back to Musings on History. I'm your host, Dana. And no, I am not writing one-off episodes to put off finishing my last two episodes on socialism. I've just been reading too many 20th century German philosophers. Anyway, one day on the Twitters, I was discussing current affairs with one of my mutuals and I expressed to him that I felt like the desire to be represented in media, art, and politics had replaced actual liberation movements. I made this observation pre-pandemic and he, Jared, mentioned repressive desublimation, a term coined by Dr. Herbert Marcuse, noted German-American sociologist and author, member of the Frankfurt School and the New Left Movement. This made me think of Hannah Arendt and Jean Baudrillard. And together we agreed to research the topic further uh, and both come together with what insights we were able to find. Also, despite the title, I'm not actually suggesting that celebrity adulation and avatarship or representational politics are on the decline in this time of corona. Rather, that it could be. One does need to apply oneself, after all. Chapter 1. The Ascendancy of Representational Politics As a term, representational politics is somewhat vague and can be easily misconstrued as synonymous with identity politics, the term coined by author Barbara Smith and the members of the Kambahi River Collective. In a recent interview in The New Yorker, Smith clarified that the collective meant that Black women have a right to formulate their own political agendas. The Kambahi River Collective's central mantra was that in order for everyone to be free, Black women must be free since our freedom necessitates the destruction of all forms of oppression. In case you feel like the collective was missing an element of oppression in this statement, it's worth noting that Barbara Smith identifies as a lesbian, as did Audre Lorde and Cheryl L. Clark. For the purposes of this episode, I will categorize representational politics as I see them, which is the embody the appointment or election of individuals of various races, ethnicities, socioeconomic backgrounds, religions, sexual orientations, and gender identities to positions of political power, not because their identities drive their politics, but because their identities present the illusion of inclusivity while the political status quo does not actually change for other people with those identities. In essence, Representational politics, to me, is the establishment putting a multicultural face on status quo politics in order to give the appearance of societal and political change in a positive, more inclusive, and egalitarian direction. Nowhere was this more evident than during the 2019 Democratic primary. In the field, you had Joe Biden, former senator from Delaware and vice president to Barack Obama, Senator Bernie Sanders from Vermont, Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, 
Senator Kamala Harris from California, Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey, former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg, and venture capitalist Andrew Yang. So Joe Biden's a Catholic. Elizabeth Warren is a woman of dubious Native American heritage, depending on what day it is and what job she can get. Kamala Harris is half Indian and half Afro-Jamaican. Bernie Sanders is Jewish. Pete Buttigieg is gay. Cory Booker is African-American. And Andrew Yang is Asian-American. In terms of their politics, there were some variations. Bernie Sanders was a proponent of Medicare for All, as was Elizabeth Warren, again, depending on what day it was. While Kamala Harris was skeptical about the costs and Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden preferred shoring up Obamacare to replacing it with Medicare for All. Andrew Yang's shtick was UBI, which none of the other candidates really pay much attention to or were in favor of. And Cory Booker was in favor of a racial task force that would look into some sort of reparations for the descendants of American slaves. That was his thing. Nobody else was really going up for that. On foreign policy, Sanders was ironically the most critical of Israel continuing to violate their UN agreements to not build additional settlements in the West Bank, whereas the other candidates were pretty much unequivocal in their support for whatever Israel does. Um, None called for troop withdrawals in Afghanistan or Iraq, and only Sanders, who is a self-identified democratic socialist, thought that preemptive strikes against Iran were unnecessary, but even he said he wouldn't rule it out. So since primaries are a little more than pageants and dog and pony shows these days, you really don't get to know what candidates think about things like farm subsidies or uh, how to repair and upgrade America's infrastructure. Although Sanders' protege, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, co-sponsored the New Green Deal with Congressman Ed Markey, and it does address developing sustainable infrastructure. So, I mean, you can make the leap that, yeah, he's for it. But you get the sense that the diversity in the primaries was not a diversity of thought or of ideology, but just a diversity in identity itself. Which, if you are Native American and gay and living near a Superfund site, that doesn't really do much for you. But this is what representational politics looks like. It's the same hawkish foreign policy and domestic incrementalism delivered by a United Colors of Benetton ad of handpicked tokens. So the question that I had now is, how do we get here and... Were we as a nation always placated by representational politics? And the answers I've come to so far are I don't know and no. The history of the United States is the history of various groups of people fighting for those unalienable rights that the founding fathers originally reserved for themselves. There was the women's suffrage movement, the Civil War, uh, the Latino-led labor movement of the 70s and 80s, the labor strikes that gave us the 40-hour work week during the progressive era, the gay rights movement, the women's rights movement, the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, the black power movement of the 70s, and the list just kind of goes on and on and on and on and on because if you're not born a white man in the USA, you pretty much have to fight for every right you want to have. These struggles uh, are obviously, like I said, continuing because like gay marriage only became legal in 2015, for example. But 
Somehow now these victories are being framed as proof of the power of incrementalism rather than proof of the power of agitation, organization, and protest. But you can pretty much lay that at the feet of like the mass media system and the education system who have both worked in cahoots to present these pretty conservative status quo elements as being agents of progress, just really, really slow ones that we should be thankful for, for whatever reason. So in fact, in the last 40 years, members of marginalized identities have seen a regression in their civil liberties, the biggest kick in the teeth obviously being the Patriot Act, but at the state and national level, even as the government itself is becoming more diverse. At this point in history, we have more Muslims serving in Congress than ever before, but we also have a ban on immigration from majority Muslim countries. If you were to focus just on Muslim representation in Congress, you'd think Muslims in America were doing better than ever. But in reality, Islamophobia is as bad now as it was immediately post 9-11, and hate crimes against Muslims have reached a decade-long high, according to MuslimAdvocates.org. To try and get some perspective on this, I turn to Marcuse and his theory of repressive desublimation to understand why things seem to be getting worse for people of marginalized identities, even as it seemed like they were more represented in government, and also why so many Americans seem to be okay with this happening. Chapter 2, Repressive Desublimation in Society. Herbert Marcuse coined rather the term repressive desublimation in his 1964 book, One Dimensional Man, to describe the phenomena wherein technologically advanced capitalist societies, the progress of technological rationality is liquidating the oppositional and transcending elements in the higher culture. What that means is that art, which was originally made in critique of the status quo and used to speak truth to power, art has now been commodified and flattened out into a status quo commodity in and of itself while seemingly performing the function of speaking truth to power while in reality it isn't. Like not to belabor the point, but dressing up like a Black Panther to perform at the Super Bowl where they give like a whole parade or whatever for the imperialist military that the actual Black Panther Party was staunchly against and it all being sponsored by a global conglomerate that's poisoning the water in global South countries. Again, something that the actual Black Panthers were staunchly against. It looks revolutionary, but in reality, it is in service to everything counter-revolutionary. That's what repressive desublimation is. Dressing up liberational aesthetic while not being liberational at all. And I get, I don't mean to belabor the point, but it was a really, really good example. Sorry. In psychology, sublimation is a defense mechanism whereby socially unacceptable impulses and idealizations like black radicalism become socially acceptable, but the acts or ideas themselves do not change. Just the social response to them. 
this process usually takes a long time to occur and occurs unevenly in society, usually depending on certain social factors like the social institutions working towards sublimation or against it, and how much relative power these institutions hold in a society. I'll use it for another example, being queer in America. While gay marriage is legal in all 50 states, there are areas of the country where it is objectively safer to be queer or to raise a family as a queer person, such as New York City, Los Angeles, San Francisco, or Atlanta. This is not due to like a population explosion of LGBTQ people in America. There's probably just as many queer people in America now as there was 50, 60 years ago. The difference is the shift in public opinion on being publicly queer. And a large part of that is due to declining association with organized religions. According to the Pew Research Center, the dominant religion in America is Christianity, Protestant Christianity. And a smaller share of U.S. adults are now identifying as Christians, while a growing number are not identifying with any religion at all. The share of those who don't identify with, um, the, the share of those, sorry, that are IDing as Christian has gone down from 78% to 65% from July 2009 to July 2019. And the share of non-religious people has gone up from 16 to 23% during that same time period. Of course, stats like this have to account for all sorts of variables. And 65% means that America is still very much a country dominated by Christian ideology, but the numbers of non-religious people trended higher in cities with large and visible LGBTQ populations. Antonio Gramsci wrote about how non-governmental institutions tend to uphold the status quo and are essential in helping governments maintain their legitimacy in the eyes of the people and their authority. At the time he wrote this, his native country of Italy was under the rule of the fascist dictator Benito Mussolini and the Catholic Church, which was and still is a powerful social institution with a huge amount of influence on how Italians think. They were supporting Mussolini's fascist rhetoric, which in turn made Italians also support his fascist rhetoric. In these LGBTQ-friendly cities, Fewer people are adhering to Christian dogma, which tends to skew homophobic, let's be real. And thus, more people in these large and heavily populated cities are less homophobic because they don't have a social institution telling them that it's okay to be homophobic. This is sublimation in action. Marcuse postulated that desublimation, which is the involution or the shrinking of sublimation, instead offers a more instantaneous gratification, one that replicates sublimation, but you don't have to work as hard for it or wait as long. The uh, downside, of course, to desublimation being a more instantaneous gratification is that the gratification is not grounded in something that is actually occurring, real progress. It just looks like it, which is the next best thing. And in the next chapter, I'll get into the phenomena and theories around that. So yeah, this is why, according to Marcuse, you see fewer student-led movements and more focus on electoral politics as the way to implement societal change. On-the-ground movements tend to produce more substantive results and policy change, actual real results. 
but it takes a lot longer to achieve sublimation, aka social progress, and it exposes activists to greater personal risk, financial risk, you know, you could lose your life, you could get thrown in prison, yada, yada, yada. Whereas voting in elections is private and it has little to no risk as it is an activity encouraged and protected by the government. And for most people, it involves the act of voting and nothing else. So electoral politics being framed as the way forward in social progress is kind of like a double-edged sword. On one hand, you get to feel like you're really making a difference without really doing anything at all and not incurring any risk. But on the other hand, you're really not making any progress. You're just feeding into a narrative that progress is being made. Chapter three, simulation and desublimation. So another theory that helps to explain the phenomenon of representational politics and more importantly, how it's embedding itself into the collective consciousness is Jean Baudrillard's concept of simulacra and simulation. That is the name of the book he's most famous for, actually, Simulacra and Simulation. Simulacra are symbols of an idea that doesn't actually exist. Exists meaning it's not something that like you can hold, you know, it's not a rock. It's, it's an idea. It doesn't exist as a material thing. And also, it's not something that you like will see all over the place in nature. Like dolphins, as far as I know, don't have like moral codes or whatever. Baudrillard calls, sorry, Baudrillard, I hate the French, calls them copies. But that is a little too literal for me. So I just call them like symbols or whatever. Simulacra would be like the Pope is a symbol of God's authority or a monarch being a symbol of law and order. In the post-structural sense, the Pope and the King are copies of something that has never existed, those things being God and law, respectively. I don't say that to ruffle anyone's feathers. I'm just explaining hyper-reality as crudely as I can. And the French are godless. Everybody knows this. Baudrillard argued that human civilizations as human civilizations evolved, so did the simulacra. And that in the present day, nothing presented by mass media is real and it's all a simulation. It's kind of like the, there's a lot of Baudrillard in the matrix. As Baudrillard himself put it, it's all reference and no references. The pervasive idea that the Democratic Party is the political faction that cares about human rights or equal pay is not based on reality. And Baudrillard would argue that both human rights and the idea of gender equality are not real. Unreal concepts with symbols to make them real. So you have like, I don't know, Rosie the Riveter would be another example of simulacra. You see her and you associate, right? You start to associate mentally with equality. Even though when Rosie the Riveter came out, things were as unequal for women as they possibly could be. So yeah, mass media uses these symbols, the DNC to represent equality, Republicans to represent American values, whatever those are for the purposes of constructing a reality for people to engage with rather than them engaging with their actual circumstances. 
So I bet you're wondering how this all ties into desublimation. And I spent a good week writing this one chapter because I was wondering too. But now I've kind of figured this out, right? If sublimation changes the public attitude without the offensive, and I, I, I use that in air quotes, elements of the things changing, then simulacra would be the tools used in that process. And if desublimation is the flattening of revolutionary simulacra, then the avatars who serve as representative tools would aid in that process. Chapter five, celebrity and representational politics in the time of Corona. So how could the COVID-19 pandemic change the social and political landscape in ways that, I mean, are obvious already? In addition to the many posits that have been put forth, I now offer mine. Mass media outlets, such as social media, which have long served the interests of promoting the hyperreality, may now inadvertently contribute to its demise as it is now becoming starkly obvious that the celebrities and politicians whose job it is to be an avatar to false reality are instead living in their own reality, one that the average person is becoming very much aware that they're not part of. So, Think about celebrities in the 1940s, right? Hollywood film stars were enlisting in the military or made a show of rationing just like everybody else and generally did other things to promote an idea of unification and American patriotism, another fake concept that becomes real through symbolism. And the symbols are, of course, like flags, salutes, rosy, and other nonsuch. Seeing these symbols of patriotism inspired others to model what they were being shown. But here now, we're seeing celebrities' lives go more or less back to normal. They're vacationing in places we can't go. You know, even if we had a passport in the funds, we can't get there for whatever reason. Um, Making movies and music videos, holding large parties where, curiously, no one ever seems to catch the incredibly infectious COVID-19. I just... I don't know. I just find that so weird. Like, why is it that when celebrities throw these maskless events, no one ever catches COVID, but somebody else can like hug their mom and like 17 people in their family die. It's just very strange to me, which large maskless events are being reported as super spreader events and which ones are not. But anyway, back to what I was saying. And so The rest of us are not seeing our lives go back to normal. On top of being fed mixed messages from symbols of authority at the local, state, and federal level. In order for the simulation to work, it has to work concurrently. And currently, none of that is happening. People are beginning to become suspicious of everything they see and are told, which is a good thing but it's also a bad thing because being contrarian and being suspicious and being a critical thinker are all three different things. But the one thing that I can say about all of those are it works against the formation of a constructed hyperreality. At the moment, things are holding pretty steady and news of the successful vaccine trials are reinforcing our beliefs in the current simulation. But the human mind is a very precarious place. So I don't think it would take much for the carefully constructed ruse that is our current reality to come crashing down. In times past, this is a history podcast, so you know a loop back into history is coming. 
constructed realities such as the right of kings to rule because of God or whatever. Those things came crashing down during plagues, wars, and depositions most of the time. And at the current moment, we're two for three. So, you know, come back to this later if you need to. I'll be here with my tinfoil hat on. Next episode, I'm headed back to China where an aging Mao Zedong has a midlife crisis that gets hundreds of thousands of people killed. And somehow that is still not more pathetic than Barack Obama launching a drone strike on a Yemeni wedding because of what Sean Hannity said on TV. Join me next time for more Musings on History.